Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You're with Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online, and of course, we're on your smart speaker as well. Coming up, Rishi Sunak faces a growing rebellion tonight over the government's controversial Rwanda plan as two sides of the Tories go head-to-head. We'll bring the latest as it happens. And it's as the Prime Minister spent the day being grilled about his time as Chancellor during the pandemic. He issued an apology to those who suffered and lost loved ones. And from a jungle in Australia to the jungle of politics, Nigel Farage hints he could rejoin the Tory party after he found newfound popularity as a runner-up on I'm a Celeb. Good evening and welcome. Britain, it's time to have a serious conversation. This is the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Have you ever heard such a load of old cobblers as you've heard today in the midst of what should be a lead-up to Christmas and the New Year, a time when people can look forward to the future? 13 years into a government reign should not have led to this. It should not have come to this. But it has come to this. As the night accelerates into the new day, the country is facing a very, very odd situation. After the coalition shambles with the Lib Dems and the nonsense of the years after the Brexit referendum, our elected MPs have once more really let us down. All day we have heard bitter arguments, negative briefings, reasons to say no to a bill which has been cooked up by a Prime Minister who's desperate to put something in the win column. Because let's face it, he doesn't have much going for him. Practically everyone thinks the Rwanda bill isn't the answer to Britain's immigration problems. That's because it isn't. It will never deter the thousands coming here each and every month from all corners of the world without any fear of being deported. It will do nothing to stop the hundreds of thousands coming here legally as students and then staying for years afterwards. And it will do nothing to help build houses for the extra millions of people now living in the UK who weren't here as little as five years ago. Also, it won't cure the sickness afflicting the National Health Service. We talk often on this show about the need for the government to start listening to the voters, to start getting it. Yet still... They refuse. How is it possible for these highly paid elected officials and their even higher paid mandarins in the civil service to be so hopelessly out of touch with reality? Do they really think arguing about WhatsApp messages, going backwards and forwards on an immigration bill after 13 years and tweeting barbs about rivals is what the public wants? No. What we need is some proper leadership, some proper vision and maybe even a little imagination. But we've got the square root of bugger all going on instead. We are, ladies and gentlemen, at the crossroads yet again. By this time tomorrow, Rishi Sunak could be facing oblivion. He could have lost the vote on Rwanda and he could be staring down the end of his career. And if that's where we are, I don't think many of you will lose any sleep. I certainly won't. And if he was to walk away, I don't think anyone would grieve the loss of a very short-lived Prime Minister. Regardless of what happens, it must surely be time now to pull the cord. I'm sick of hearing empty promises, of listening to failure dressed up as accomplishment and being told it's not their fault, because it is their fault. Let's start all over again. This is the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Let's get it on. (music) 
So, does your next general election vote rest on the government fixing immigration? Get in touch with the show and all the socials at Talk TV, and we want to hear from you on the phones. 0344 499 1000. Calls will cost the national rate. It seems like Rishi Sunak may have been thrown a lifeline uh, in the latest uh, from the soft right One Nation Conservatives. They say they'll back the Rwanda bill. Meanwhile, Labour's already planning to vote it down. To discuss this, I'm joined by the Director of Communications at the Henry Jackson Society, Megan Gittos, Chairman of the Bow Group, Ben Harris-Quinney, and journalist and author, Laura Dodsworth. Very good evening to all of you. Welcome. Um, I'm sort of suddenly feeling very underwhelmed by everything that's been going on for the last sort of 12 hours. It seems as though there's been an awful lot of noise, an awful lot of kind of, you know, opinion. But in the end, it's all just a load of old bollocks, for want of a better word, isn't it? Megan? Yeah, um, I mean, the Tory party is as split as it always is, but each fringe group is getting louder and louder, right. um, trying to posture ahead but of... But what they're the arguing about is sort of nothing, because whatever it is won't make any difference. Do you know what I mean, Ben? Well, do you know how many people the Iran Rwanda agreement deals with? 200 right. people. 13 years ago, the Conservative Party promised to end illegal immigration altogether and reduce yeah. legal immigration to the tens of thousands. Right. And we're having this furious debate that's supposed to be the solution, and it's about 200 mm. people. It is a tiny drop in the ocean. Which will end up being it's more ridiculous. than the Tories will have in the next um, parliament. If they're it? lucky. If, if they're, they're lucky. lucky. Laura, I mean, it's all a bit pointless, isn't it? Yeah, it's interesting you're saying it would, it would just serve about 200 people now, because in a sense, there's almost a sort of a painful but delicious irony over this. It's become a dead cat story. I mean, who could forget years ago, Linton Crosby and Boris Johnson came up with this dead cat strategy. Mm. You know, if you don't like the facts, if you don't know what's going on around, you just slap a dead cat on the table yeah. and say, look at that, mate. In a way, Rwanda's become a dead cat strategy. And it shouldn't be. You know, it should be um, a suitable deportation and deterrent strategy. Mm. But it's come to emblemise everything that's wrong. Infighting in the party, a civil service which is not doing its part to uphold a sovereign parliament. You know, even the union, the um, Public and Commercial Services Union, stood against it on the grounds of legality, yes. morality and humanity. No one is doing their part to keep parliament, which is us, the people, mm. sovereign in this country. You know, who, who runs this country? Is it parliament or is it some vague, nebulous idea of international law? Right that isn't accountable here. Right. Well, this is the thing. Even if, if it's minister... not many people, it's this symbol of yeah. everything that's wrong right yeah. now with our immigration policy. I mean, they're talking in Downing Street tonight, um, Megan, as if, you know, the threat to democracy is coming from inside the Tory party. It's actually not coming from inside the Tory party. It's coming from places like the lawyers who seem to have a much higher kind of incidence of, of opinion now than they've ever had. And they seem to be... Yeah. You ask who's running the country. It sounds to me like the lawyers are running the country. Well, yeah, you make a really interesting point, and 50% of the Tory party are actually making that very point, yeah. that this for them is do or die, as Rishi said, because they think this is only the start of something as it snowballs onto every stage of this plan. Right. The government's going to be in court at every stage of this. Yeah. It's not going away. So I think in the after the general election, in my opinion, we need to have a real look at the courts. Yeah, I think we do. So why are they... Banking everything, or why is Rishi Sunak banking everything? I mean, most people are saying you know, he'll probably get this through, the vote will probably go okay, but he only needs 29 people, I think, to, um, uh, to, to, to vote it down and a few abstentions, and suddenly away you go. Well, and if he loses the vote, then surely nobody can have any confidence in him. Well, I'm hearing a lot of dissent, but I actually think the worst thing that could happen to him is if he got it through, because mm. what's going to happen is... 
there are going to be loads of legal challenges. The government aren't even going to be able to fulfill that 200 people agreement. Right. And he's going to look ridiculous. So I think the, you know, the, the factions in the Conservative Party that are saying you need to rethink this altogether are mm. right. And hopefully they will win out tomorrow. Yeah. But the biggest problem in the immigration debate at the moment is, is the fact that there's just too many people coming to Britain and there isn't enough room for them all. Whether it's legal, whether it's illegal, we found out that the number of foreign students in the UK has risen by nearly a third, a record high. More and more of them are staying here after they finish their courses. You know, we've got more people coming on work visas who are then also staying on. We've got a continuation of the, the, the migrant hotel business. I mean, the whole thing is just completely... Do lally. Well, I, I think most people in Britain are pro-immigration, anti-mass immigration. Mm. And anti-mass mass immigration is something that, that came in under Blair. No one voted for it. Jack Straw, the yeah. Home Secretary, said that they'd fudged the figures by a factor of 10. Right. And we've just had year on year of increase. And I think looking more long run, the British people feel, regardless of Rishi Sunak or any individual leader or politician, they feel that whatever they think on immigration, it is completely ignored decade after mm. decade. And that's a real problem for our political system because most people are against mass immigration, yet we've had it for almost 30 years. Yeah, we have. And it's not improving the state of the country, it seems to me. Uh, a lot of people are saying, well, it's a European problem, it's a worldwide problem, and there are lots more people moving around now than there used to be. But it seems that a lot of European countries, Laura, do deal with their own uh, deportation situation a lot better than we do. Um, yeah, no, possibly. But, you know, when you talk about internationally, a story immediately springs to my mind now, which is um, that it's going to sound like it's a slight tangent, but I think it's related and reflects why people have sort of had it at the moment with immigration. Um, Denmark has changed its law so that you cannot overtly criticise religions right. in different ways, including the burning of the Quran. Mm. And they've had to do this because they've had a bit of a Quran burning problem. Right. And well, the so they've made it illegal to burn the Quran. Yeah. Right. Probably the Bible too, but let's be honest, it's not Christians complaining about Bible burning that's led to this law. Right. And the government's actually said, well, we've done this because we can't, we can't actually control the risk to security if we don't. Yeah. So there's a sense in which demographics, laws are changing in countries as a result of immigration and pressure from different cultures, you know, this whole kind of lack of social cohesion that Suella Bravman was talking about. So I don't know which countries have got a grip on deportation, yeah. but I don't think any country's really got a grip on a on the mass immigration and the change, yeah. the change to culture. No, I get that, but so, I mean, Denmark, funnily enough, is one that is, is actually deporting people and without any worry about what the ECHR's got to say about it, they've been doing that. The French also turned down more asylum seekers than we do by percentage, even though they have more people applying, you know. Germany's now told Italy they're not taking any more asylum seekers from Italy who are going to come in. The French have said the same. They're setting up borders. The Schengen Agreement is in tatters. Most EU countries are now saying enough is enough. And we can't seem to get a grips with any of it. Yeah, I mean, Sweden, Holland, these countries that, you know, we think of as being lefty liberal yeah. paradises are now taking hardline stances. Because for whoever you are in politics... Right? This mass immigration issue is a major problem. Even if you are a big open borders advocate, you've got to acknowledge the problems it's causing in society. Yeah. And what we're seeing in those countries that are traditionally more liberal is they're having to take more severe action than we're taking, and we need to catch up. Yeah. Let's have a look at what Marc Francois has to say. Now, Marc Francois was a guy that you saw constantly on television during the Brexit, uh, post-Brexit debates um, because he was from the European Research Group quite hard line on Brexit, didn't want any kind of a soft deal. Um, similarly, in this instance, he's standing up for them to say um, that they think it's not worth the paper it's written on. Let's have a look. 
The feeling very much in the meeting is that the government will be best advised to pull the bill and to come up with a revised version that works better than this one, which has so many holes in it. In as much as there was a consensus, Beth, that was the consensus. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? You know, we've now got the right of the party upset with it because it's not going far enough, and you've got the sort of the wets and the left of the party saying, oh, you better be careful you don't overstep the mark with the international law stuff. Yeah, so he's pleased nobody with this. Yeah, because politically, certain fringes of the Tory party, for whatever reason, depending on the constituents they have, they've backed themselves into a corner with mm. the Rwanda plan and they don't know how to get out of it. So rather than just vote for it and keep it moving, they are going to um, blow up their own party, yeah. I think. They're determined to. Yeah, it seems. So what will emerge from that, though, once they blow it up? Anybody know? I mean, election wipeout, just they said. And then what I think <laughs> will happen is what always happens when parties kind of kill each other from the inside is a one nation will take over, mm. a one nation MP will take over the party. Parties go to the right or to the far left, as they did with Jeremy Corbyn. They kill each other for a bit and then they put the centrist up. And the sensible people return. <laughs> Except in the Tory party, the centrists aren't the sensible people, no, are they're they? Not. They're the ones that want net zero. They're the ones that want you to sort of, you well, know, this so buy yourself an electric car and some heat pumps. This so-called sensible people moniker is, is exactly the problem. And that's... What, what happened is we had a political revolution in this country with Brexit and it just hasn't been reflected mm. in Parliament. And the British public are in a completely different position to, I think, both parties. Because Labour will be having problems, you know, soon oh, after they, they get in they as are. well. Well, they've got They're no policy now. Now, have they? They've and got... I think we need systemic change because yeah. the, our, our Parliament, the first-past-the-post system, I don't like. I don't think it reflects the views of the public. And increasingly, we're seeing that. We're seeing a completely different conversation on channels like yours yeah. than we're seeing in, in, in Parliament. The net zero issue, it was only a few years ago that people started to say, you know, on the right of the Conservative Party, maybe this isn't a yeah. good idea, but we've been saying that right. for, for, exactly for right. since time And everybody so, suddenly worked out, because it's all getting a bit nearer, all these deadlines that they set for doing things are right. suddenly just a couple of years away. They're all going, oh, blimey, I've got to get rid of the car. You know, I've got to get rid of the radiators. I've got to get a it new boiler. And you know, It just doesn't work. Nobody actually wants it. But we've got this from the new Conservatives. I don't even know who they are but it's a group of supposedly um, sort of middle-of-the-road sensible people, I think. More than 40 colleagues met tonight to discuss the bill. Every member of that discussion says the bill needs major surgery or replacement, and they'll be making that plain in the morning to the Prime Minister at breakfast and over the next 24 hours. So they're not happy, and they're supposed to be the ones in the middle. So there's a pretty good chance he could lose this, isn't there? There is a pretty good chance, but it, again, 40 of them said that, and as you said, he only needs to lose 30. So a lot of them, I expect, will vote for it. I don't know why MPs keep doing this, where they set themselves challenges. Rishi's doing it, and now they're even doing it in the yeah. fringe of the party. They set themselves these 24-hour challenges. They know they're not going to keep. Right. Why don't they just say it's not perfect, I'm going to vote for it, when ultimately that's what most of them are going to do. And it takes me back, do. I don't know if it does you, Laura, but in our days when we used to sit in the tent of shame down on uh, College Green. <laughs> in 2019 when we wrote this ridiculous stalemate and then people would not vote with the government on Brexit and they'd get kicked out and they'd suddenly walk across the chamber and go and join, you know, the other side or become independents. Remember that? There was that party that formed itself for a while. There was about nine of them. Anna Subri. Yeah, Anna Subri. I can't remember what they called it. No, I can't, actually. The new, yeah, the new independence or some well. ridiculous mm -hmm. thing. Anyway, we've easily forgotten. But it was a bit like, you know, sort of the Rolling Stones breaking up and a couple of them going off and doing another album for a while and then they're all, they're all out. You know, 
Well, don't you Change think, UK, it was called. There you go. Don't you think the rift is big enough in the Conservative Party to justify a split? No, I don't Fantasy think it is. I think A-level exams, politics exams, have been saying since I was 18, are the gaps within the Tory party and Labour party bigger or smaller than those between them? It's always been a case there's been these fringe groups. I don't think this is anything new. I just think the danger is it's gotten very loud. So I think... That's what happens, as I was saying earlier, you get an election wipeout, a party is massively mm. reduced, and then it's kind of the centrists that rise up again. It's the But then we see. But, but we're going to have to stop. We're going to continue this. I've got a couple of quotes here from people who were asked, does your next general election vote rest on the government fixing immigration? Christine says, yes, definitely, although I haven't got any faith in them doing so. The alternative Labour will be worse. Uh, Liam says, the bigger concern is all over Europe. The first that promises to send them home will get the vote. So, I mean, even though pollsters keep telling us that, you know, it's not the biggest issue in British politics, I, I don't believe that. I think it absolutely mm. is. Um, but listen, stay with us, guys. You're in the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Up after the break, uh, Rishi Sunak caught up in the viper pit of the COVID inquiry and just how many knives are out for him as he tables the Rwanda bill. It's his great white hope. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Today, Rishi Sunak found himself in the dock. That's right. The Prime Minister himself was giving evidence at the COVID inquiry, where his first statement was one of apology. I just wanted to start by saying how deeply sorry I am to all of those who lost loved ones, family members through the pandemic, and also all those who suffered in the various different ways throughout the pandemic and as a result of the actions were taken. I've thought a lot about this over the past couple of years. It's important that we learn the lessons so that we can be better prepared in the future. Joining me now is Talk TV's international editor, Isabel Oakshaw. Uh, thanks, Isabel. Is that somebody saying for the first time that there was harm created by the measures that were taken, perhaps? Good evening. Well, I certainly, evening, I certainly thought that that was a significant acknowledgement from Rishi Sunak. No one else has done that. No. I think what he was getting at there was that the government, those responsible for the decision making, shouldn't just be apologising about the many people who died, many of whom um, died as a direct result of blunders by the government, but also to the millions of people that suffered grievously and are still suffering as a result of lockdowns. Now, he didn't spell that out. I'd like him to have. He didn't quite go that far. But I think that's what he was getting at. And, well, it's a start, isn't it? Well, it's getting there, isn't it? Some, somebody finally acknowledging that there was harm created by something other than um, the, the actual COVID disease itself. And the WhatsApp conversation was interesting as well, because you've, you've said to me before, I don't know why they're having such trouble getting hold of all these WhatsApps, so you just come and ask me for them. Um, he doesn't seem to understand WhatsApp very well, Rishi Soon. Let's just have a look what he said. You don't now have access to any of the WhatsApps that you did send during the time of the crisis, do you? No, I don't. I've changed my phone multiple times over the past few years, and as that has happened, the messages have not come across. Around that time, April and May 2021, did nobody say to you, Chancellor, it's important that you do retain your WhatsApps or we need to put into place measures for them to be backed up in case they become relevant to an inquiry? 
No, I, I don't recall either of those conversations that you refer to between officials, but you might have been referring to officials in number 10 rather yes. than the Treasury. No, yes, and I don't recall anyone in my office making that uh, recommendation or uh, observation to me at the time. I mean, my first thought when I saw that was to think, well, hang on, you're in government, in a senior position in government, you're exchanging um, ideas and policy suggestions with colleagues in the cabinet, which at the very least should be reasonably secure, and nobody seems to be in charge of where any of these things go. Well, the other thing that's a bit odd about it is when you change your phone, normally you just load up the app mm. then, again using your your original sign-ins for the app concerned and you'll get all your records. Right. So I'm not sure that changing your phone necessarily means you lose all your data. Otherwise, no one would ever change their phone. They'd have to start again with every account they have. Right. But what I would say in defence of Rishi Sunak um, is that the WhatsApp messages that I've got between him and Matt Hancock seem to bear out what he said, which is that he's not a prolific WhatsApp user. Now, this might be in the case of his exchanges with the then health secretary, that they weren't particularly close, which mm. they weren't. You know, they weren't particularly good friends. Mm. Nonetheless, um, between them, um, Matt Hancock and Rishi Sunak were two of the four most important people in government on policymaking over the pandemic. And actually, the file that I have for him is pretty sparing. It looks that he has always been rather cautious of putting things in writing, mm. um, as the cleverest people probably are. And so it may be that his WhatsApps aren't actually that exciting, right. even if we could see all the other ones. And he acquitted himself reasonably well. I mean, in some cases, people said today that was probably the best place he could be while his party was kind of ripping itself to shreds elsewhere. Uh, he just had to answer some questions from, from a KC um, who wasn't on particularly good form, I didn't think, today. Well, he was a bit softer than usual, Hugo Keith QC, uh, KC. Um, I thought that Sunak gave a, a pretty solid performance. Um, he put up a robust defence of... Uh, the various measures that came in for criticism, most most high profile one being the eat out to help out scheme. And Hugo um, Keith, the case, he was forced to admit, really, that there was no compelling evidence that this much maligned scheme was responsible for any anyone additional perishing as a result of COVID. There may have been a very slight correlation in an uptick in cases, uh, but actually the inquiry a uh, barrister acknowledged that there's no causality there. And I think Sunak, in a sense, was impressive in his reluctance to criticise everyone else. You know, we've seen a number of other high-profile witnesses who have not hesitated to attack pretty much everyone other than their own record. Mm. And time and again, Sunak resisted that temptation. You know, he he continually defended number 10 and Boris Johnson's operation. And given that there's no lo love lost between those two men, that was actually quite a generous thing for him to have done. Yes. Isabel, thank you very much uh, indeed. Isabel Oakeshott there uh, telling us of her views on uh, the appearance uh, by the Prime Minister. Joining me now is the author and columnist of the Mail on Sunday, Mr Peter Hitchens. Welcome, Peter. Good evening. So, um, are we reaching the end of the pantomime season with the sort of... Uh, the dashing on the rocks of the Sunak administration? Good Lord, no. Uh, <laughs> masses to come, including shouts of, oh, no, you didn't, and it's behind you. Uh, plenty plenty more pantomime, I think, stretching out well into the wretched, freezing, dank 
months of January and February, uh, this is an industry which will run and run. And not, I have to say, that I will be paying much attention to it. No. Uh, it still seems to me to be an almost total waste of time and money, and indeed designed to be. And it's, 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 it's odd, really. There isn't any other news that we could actually concentrate on. It doesn't well, really count as news to me. No. Now, there is an interesting point here. I think I, Rishi Sunak, I would struggle if I heard his voice on the radio uh, without being told who it was, to know who it was, because we've heard his voice so little. Yes. And it's quite interesting to actually see him talking at length, because he doesn't very often do it. Uh, I always I was find he's got a similar, a similar sort of diction to Tony Blair, actually. There's something, there's, there's something like... But no, Blair had a particular sort of squeaky and slightly Australian voice, which, which Sunak doesn't have. He, he, he would pronounce words like pathetic as pathetic, mm. things like that, which always give him way. But the thing about Sunak is we don't really know very much about him as a performer. And it's interesting to see. I have a suspicion that, as you, you and Isabel were discussing earlier, this, uh, this, this performance may have done him some good. Yeah. Uh, he's, he just behaved in a, in a civilised fashion, uh, which they would have taught him to do, of course, at Winchester. Yes. I mean, his other problem, of course, is this Rwanda thing, which he seems obsessed oh, with, yeah. which is, as you say, I think, pointless. But you wrote this weekend about how society is now currently set up uh, in which, uh, in, in such a way that it can't really operate without mass immigration anymore. Well, it is a consequence of the of the moral, social, and cultural revolution of the sixties that we we abandoned several things. Particularly, we abandoned the sort of education system which produces large numbers of people to fill the jobs that we want to fill. And so, mm. uh, if we want to fill them, then we're I won't say compelled, but uh, under pretty strong pressure to recruit people abroad. Uh, pillaging their education systems, which do better than ours. And we've also changed completely the nature of family life so that women who used to do a fantastic amount of unpaid work at home, both looking after children and in many cases looking after the old as well, have now been marched off into factories and call centres and offices. And, uh, and, and in some cases, they're not as many as you might think glittering careers. And so they're not there to do those jobs anymore. At the same time as the, the structure of the family has pretty much collapsed. So an awful, again, an awful lot of children are growing up without fathers. And again, it's going to be difficult to employ. So we have created these, these enormous roles. The other thing we've done, of course, is we've made it almost impossible to raise a family on one income mm. and made the whole idea, which used to be quite attractive to people of fairly large families, deeply unattractive. And so many of the people that have been aborted and contraceptive out of existence before their lives started are now being replaced by, by people who've been imported from other countries. So immigration is, has many characteristics, but one of them is it's, it, is a, uh, it is a result of gigantic social changes which we volunteered for, or rather our elite volunteered for, 50 or 60 years ago, which are now coming to fruition. And if we ever want to be a society which is not dependent on mass immigration again, we're going to have to change our education system enormously to make it much more vocational, for instance. And we're going to have to, in my view, reconstruct family life so that children get a better upbringing than they do. And also we're going to have to decide who's, who's actually going to do all those jobs, mm. which the women we've marched off into, the, into wage slavery used to do, because at the moment they have to be done very expensively, often by people imported from abroad and paid wages. It's a, it is a conundrum which nobody is really addressing. And it's all very well to say I'm against mass immigration. I think many of us are, because we see the, the, the huge social consequences of large numbers of people coming from outside who haven't had time to integrate. But how are you going to deal 
with the other social problems if it's not there. I and mean, no one's thinking about this at all. And I thought it was time to set out in, a, in, in my Mail on Sunday column some thoughts about this because it, it just doesn't seem to me to be being discussed. It's no just going on about numbers and making promises you can't keep. Mm. And say, okay, we don't want this anymore. What are we going to do about it? Yeah. Well, this is the thing. I mean, I'm, I said this to somebody the weekend. We were talking about the businesses that, that are supported by what you might call mass immigration, like, for example, you know, a lot of the hospitality business, perhaps. But a lot of that has become, you know, these endless coffee shops that exist in every uh, street, in every centre, in every town in Britain, um, which didn't used to exist and which we could probably do quite well without, to be honest. And similarly... Um, well, maybe people... we could. I mean, the world... Again, this is to do with people uh, living at home less and, and, and living, as I say, at work or on the way to work more than they used to. So, this, again, the, the decline of the, of the family and of the household as the basis of life does change an awful lot of things. And, but, but also, why is it that if somebody sets up a coffee chain that they will almost invariably employ people who have, have come from, from other countries, generally continental countries? Why is it if you go to a hotel in this country, generally the uh, both the the management staff and the uh, and as it were the ancillary staff uh, almost always from from different parts mm. of the world from this it is observably the case and a lot of it has to do as, as i say with an education system which simply is not designed to produce people who are, are the sort of people mm. employers want and it's it, this is a big price we pay for and we have this very large number of people in this country now uh, in their late late teens and 20s uh, the, the famous needs not in education, yeah. employment, or training. Uh, why is that? Uh, we, we're supposed to be a very advanced country. We constantly tell us tell ourselves how wonderful our schools and universities are, and yet people don't want their products. Mm. Yes, it's a slight worry. I have to say, Peter, great to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, coming Thank up. You, thanks. Coming up later on, uh, we're going to be looking at some of the front pages. We've got one here for you. Uh, Rishi Sunak giving evidence at the COVID inquiry. This is the Metro. I did the right thing says Rishi Sunak. Did he? Well, that's one thing he says he's done right. I don't think he's done much else right. Do you? Uh, you're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Now, it's another has-been set to make a juicy political comeback after leaving the jungle. Meanwhile, Keir Starmer is set to ambush the Tories with a speech tomorrow. More on that coming up after this, so don't go anywhere. Nigel Farage certainly has a bit of a pep in his step today after the I'm a Celeb final last night, understandably with a voting percentage of 25%, a stat that reform would be absolutely thrilled with. After leaving one jungle, the Brexiteer hopes to enter yet another, uh, also known as British politics. He's ruled out a position in the Tory party under the current Prime Minister, but didn't dismiss the idea of working with a new leader. Rishi is a lame duck walking. The Conservative Party are headed for total defeat. As to whether I have a future in politics, I have no idea at this moment in time. But what I would say is never say never. And our country needs, actually, people at the top with some firm guidance as to where we're going to go in the future. At the moment, we are rudderless. And I don't see a Labour Party with the strength to get us out of this mess. I mean, he's not wrong, is he? Uh, soap opera storylines? Uh, there's all sorts of things going on back home which are actually even more terrifying than all those snakes in the jungle. Uh, I've got columnist at the Daily Mail, Dan Hodges. Welcome, Dan. Good to see you on the... Uh, I think you've been on for the first time, the newly improved um, independent Republican Mike Graham, on at night time. Oh, so what, you... a lovely looking, what a lovely-looking studio <laughs> it is. Well, you'd have to come and, in. And... 
You'll have to come in one night before before Christmas. But, I mean, Nigel Farage, he's not wrong about any of that, is he? We need somebody who's going to lead this country. I mean, look at what's going on today down in Westminster. I mean, Rishi Sunak must have been grateful that he was sitting in the COVID inquiry, not having to sort of answer phone calls and door knocks every five minutes from members of his own party um, who don't like what he's doing. Yeah, I mean, I thought, uh, I mean, I thought, I thought Rishi Sunak actually enjoyed his time at his time at the COVID inquiry compared to, as you say, what's going on elsewhere. But that's, yeah. that's not a very high bar. I mean, I thought it was interesting uh, <laughs> that, as we saw there, that Nigel Farage has uh, has ruled out uh, working with uh, Rishi Sunak, but right. hasn't specifically worked ruled out working with anyone else. I right. thought, you know, if if we were talking in football terms that I, th- I thought there maybe was an element of a come and get me plea there yes. with that uh, <laughs> with, with, with that with that it with that intervention uh but no i mean you're absolutely right i mean obviously he and uh reform it's it's an open secret he's going to come back and start um sort of pick up the reform uh the reform banner um and and the two of them have had more you know free publicity over the last how long has he been out there about a month Something like than that. they could have uh, they could have could have dreamed of and 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 it has had a a difference you can see reform are now starting to increase their support in the polls and frankly that is absolutely terrifying tory mp's yeah because the only outcome for that really must be the loss of tory seats because you don't see reform winning a lot under this current system that we've got but they could sort of stymie the tories from getting in well, that's absolutely right. Obviously, it's the situation we saw just in the run-up to the last election. At that point, Nigel Farage was persuaded to effectively sort of stand down mm. in, a, in in those seats where it looked like they could, he could potentially cost Boris the election and let Jeremy Corbyn in. But the, the problem for the Tories is that is just not going to happen this time. I mean, I was speaking to uh, senior officials from from reform last week, and they were very very explicit. They were saying, "We are going to kill the Tory party. We are going to take them out and take them out for good." I mean, somebody said to me, "We're seeing the last days of the last majority Tory administration of our lifetimes," and that is the strategy. Mm. So, unless they can do something to, as it were, you know, let's let's be blunt about it, buy off Nigel or buy off reform or do some sort of deal with reform or do some sort of pact, then they are in a very, very perilous political state because they're in a bad enough they were in a bad enough state anyway before Nigel Farage entered the jungle and reform started to to, to pick up. The idea that they would now start sort of taking even more votes, um, certainly from the right of their constituency, that's something that is frankly terrifying to MPs. Yeah. No, indeed. And do you think that he has kind of broadened his appeal by going on this show? Because a lot of, you know, punditry was uh, said around all of this stuff going on, that, you know, Nigel Farage actually, um, and I know him to be a decent guy, uh, and people will see that he's a decent guy, and that will influence their uh, possibility of voting for him and voting for his party. Well, yes. I mean, the the, the answer is yes. I mean, you've only got to look at the fact that he, you know, he came third in... You know what is you know effectively the biggest public opinion poll um, that that we that we've got going. I mean, when he went in, obviously a lot of people were trying to rubbish him, belittle him, you know, say it would, it would all turn into a disaster for him. Obviously, the opposite has been true, and it's you know it's given him uh, given him and and reform of a very major boost. And I think the thing is now, reform have basically cut through. 
they're, they're basically they're regularly now breaking double digit figures yeah. in the polls. They're regularly ahead of the ahead of the Lib Dems. You can't really when 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 this happens, it's very hard to get the genie back into the bottle. And I, I, I and, and and particularly for Rishi Sunak now, it may well be, and we've seen it before, that come come polling day, uh, a number of people may draw back. But certainly for the next few months, re- reform are going to be in the in the ascendancy. That obviously in the short term has has serious implications for Rishi Sunak and his premiership. It also actually has serious implications for the timing of the next general election because I, I've seen a number of commentators saying, well, it's it's more likely now Rishi Sunak or, and or the Tories will, another Tory leader will wait, try and play it long, wait till October. But they can't afford to do that if reform are picking up votes week after week, month after month. And the other thing they it seems to me at the moment they can't afford would be to have a, a have a local election campaign next next May, right. in which you know reform sweep the country, as we've seen them do in 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 the run up to previous elections, and obviously UKIP in terms of European elections. Yeah, well, this is the thing. I mean, it's the this week is I think the four year anniversary, isn't it, of the twenty nineteen election? I still remember that very clearly. Nobody really quite believed that the uh, uh, the majority of the Tories ended up with would would happen. I don't think there was any pundit who was not quite surprised by that because Jeremy Corbyn looked like he was going to do quite well at one point in the evening before the polls closed. Um, didn't turn out that way. No, I mean, and I was I was one of those pundits. I mean, I remember being speaking to a very you know well a, a number of senior Tory cabinet ministers at the point that campaign started. He said, "There's no way." we can get a majority and there's no way we can secure a majority. Now, obviously, part of that was obviously, the, the, as it were, you know, Nigel Farage stepping back from the brink. Obviously, the other thing was was, was Boris and the mm. effectiveness of Boris on the campaign trail, which is why, obviously, we in the Mail on Sunday were reporting this weekend, why Tory MPs, incredible, yeah. though it may sound and crazy though it may sound, why why a small but significant number of Tory MPs are now starting to talk about is there any way, is there any route that we can get we can get Boris back as leader? And is there? Well, they they seem to think too. Sort of sort of allies of Boris Johnson have, have effectively put forward two, two, two scenarios. One is the high-risk strategy, you parachute him into a by-election, see if he can get back that way but it would have to be such a rock solid Tory seat because as we've seen they're not holding by-elections where they've got majorities of 20,000 plus Mm. the other even more incredible theory is that basically Rishi Sunak is deposed a Boris ally then takes over as interim prime minister but as prime minister only Boris Johnson takes over as Tory party leader and the Tory, my understanding is the Tory party rules don't stipulate the leader has to be a member of parliament. He takes over as leader, runs for a seat in that general election as the sort of the the, 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 the figurehead right. prime minister, if you like. And that's how they get him back in. Now, again, as I say, it, <laughs> it sounds fantastical, but they are basically clutching at straws. Yeah. Well, that's a proper Trojan horse, that one. I mean, I've also heard one that involves Cameron suddenly being given a sort of, you talk about football analogy, he's going to have caretaker... Uh, Prime Minister job uh, to get through the next tournament. <laughs> well, yeah, but the trouble with that theory, though, is obviously David Cameron 
has the same problem that Boris Johnson has. You couldn't have a prime minister in the Lords. It, it, you, the prime minister would have to be a member of, of, of Parliament. And David Cameron would say, face the same question. How does David Cameron get back into Parliament? How does David Cameron win a by-election? When, as I said, just about every by-election the Tories um, contest at the moment, they're getting absolutely hammered. Mm. Absolutely right. Well, it's going to be a fascinating year by the looks of things. Not so great probably for the Tories, but uh, next time we'll get you on, we'll talk about Keir Starmer and Labour because uh, some interesting stuff there as well. Dan Hodges, Mail on Sunday. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, this is the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. After the break, is it all a bit too little too late for Rishi and his migration bill? And why have so many government ministers' WhatsApps gone wandering at the COVID inquiry? We'll get your thoughts as well and your calls. Do not go anywhere. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. And now, it's time for Taking the Mic. It takes a certain type of talent in politics to read a room so badly that you upset almost everyone in it. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. Last week here at The Independent Republic, we warned Rishi that he was wasting his time and our money by pursuing this Rwanda deportation scheme. It's doomed to failure and can only ever possibly work if this country can come up with a way of actually stopping illegal migrants coming here on those small boats. So what did the Prime Minister do? Well, he didn't listen for a start, and that was his first mistake. And as a result, he seems to have upset almost everyone in the process. He's upset the voters, those people to whom he promised to stop the boats, those people who believed the Tory party would actually take back control of our borders. He's also upset his own Tory MPs on both sides of the party, the wets who think we should all be going green and ordering heat pumps and electric cars, and the right-wingers who are saying this Rwanda bill isn't worth bothering with and they should actually tear it up and start again. He's even managed to upset Gary Lineker, and assorted lovies who seem to think it's their job to stop government policy as a result. The Match of the Day host has been smugly defending his position at the BBC after he was cleared of breaching their guidelines. We'll have a bit more on that later on. So what does the Prime Minister actually do now? In between bouts of giving evidence to the COVID inquiry today, he's been issuing more warnings to his own people about the big vote in Parliament. Whether Marc Francois and the European Research Group are calling his bluff or not, Rishi would do well to at least listen to what they're saying instead of defending international law and predicting what challenges will come to his own rules. Every other European country seems to be capable of deporting foreign migrants when it suits them. But Britain alone seems incapable of doing anything about them. And as we learn that we are now letting in record numbers of students from abroad, the British people have become more than sick and tired of hearing excuses. There's no doubt that the lawyers in this country are too powerful, that the legal system has simply become a blocking device and a method by which to undermine the sovereignty of our elected representatives. And if the Prime Minister cannot get this Rwanda bill through the Commons tomorrow night, it'll be time to pack up the shop and move on. And that can only mean one thing, a general election. I'm sure Gary Lineker will be just as critical of any new government when it comes to immigration policies. In many ways, I can't wait. Well, lots of you have been getting in touch, so let's go straight to the phones. We've got Anthony in Surrey who wants to talk about Rishi's leadership. Anthony, very good evening to you. Hello, Mike. Yes, it's nice to speak to you the first time. Yes. Thank well, you, you very much leadership. indeed. What can I do for you? 
Yeah, well, what leadership? Sadly, he's not showing it, is he, at the moment? I mean, he's absolutely torn apart in his party. He makes Theresa May look beyond strong and stable. She looks like granite, doesn't she, compared she to Rishi? But, I mean, has he um, ever been a leader? I, don't, I, don't, I can't think of anything that, that he's shown leadership in, really. No, um, I can't say perhaps um, economics. Uh, Maybe. Way back at... Uh, Stanford or something, but not in politics. No, he's just not made for it. He's just—I worry for him. He doesn't look strong enough. No, to last even isn't it kind of the new year. And is it kind of pathetic though that here we are after 13 years? And I know that's not all his fault, but after 13 years of a Tory kind of rule, we are kind of in this ridiculous mess. Yes, indeed. And who do we get back? Cameron, you said 13 years. Well, it's like an episode of Doctor Who, isn't it? It just bring back the old faces. <laughs> I mean, that is the trouble, isn't it? You know, so you've got a choice between Rishi Sunak or uh, possibly Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage or possibly David Cameron or possibly somebody that Rishi nominates to take over from him. You know, it's not exactly, you know, um, pickings that you would actually order from anywhere, is it? Not exactly, but there's one of, of that number that did actually win an election, that is Boris. That's um, true. That's what they're thinking. You know. Well, Cameron, I mean, we... supposedly Cameron is, is liked because he also won an election. But, you know, oh, I mean, yeah. I'm, I, don't, I don't like the look of that at all. But listen, thanks very much for your call. Let's go to John, uh, who's in Newcastle, wants to talk about the BBC licence fee. John, very good evening to you. Uh, hello. Uh, basically, I would like to put a point. Uh, the BBC is... Not fit for purpose, in my opinion. No. I've never watched it for a long time. No. This, this, this talk about the programme called Rip Off Britain. You might, I used to watch it years ago with Angela Rippon and Gloria Honeyford. I can't remember the other lady's name. But yeah. uh, Rip Off Britain. Well, what's a bigger rip off than the BBC? They're charging with £10 in the future uh, on everybody's licence. Yeah. There's a million people who don't pay the licence. Is that one of the reasons why? And also... They've got a situation, um, which I wrote it down here. Um, well, they've got Gary Lineker still mouthing off every five minutes. Well, and every time he does it, they seem to excuse it and say, oh, well, that's all right. Luckily, yeah. again, he hasn't breached any guidelines. No, uh, but you've got pensioners. Now, if pensioners used to get a free licence. And pensioners come out with about £202 a mm. week. Now, a, a man who's run 40 hours a week is £400. He has to pay tax but he's still better off than the pensioner, yeah. and yet they took the pensioner's uh, situation off him. Yes. And they're going to have a new uh, studio built. This is the reason I've phoned you tonight. Yeah. Uh, it'll cost of £14.5 million. Pounds. Dear me. And I think, you know, that's pretty disgusting when you think that yeah. this January and February coming... People's mortgages are jumping yeah. up and down because it's absolutely of the shocking. John, it's absolutely uh, shocking. I'm going to let you go there because I need to catch up with Jean, who's in South Wales, who's talking about COVID. Jean, very good evening to you. Good evening. What can I've I do got, for you, Jean? I've got four fast points I'd like to okay. mention. Go on. Um, why don't they destroy the immigrant boats before they are even put into the water? I agree. Water? I've, I've suggested that's a good idea. Without boats, they can't make it here. Exactly. Um, another point is the immigrants in the hotels. Yeah. Why can't journalists gain access? They just can't seem to get in there. Oh, no, they won't let us do that. They've all got security. Because they're frightened. They're frightened of the truth. Yes, but you see, you've only got to um, give each immigrant in those hotels a gun. Yeah. And we're sitting ducks, just yeah. like the Israelis. Well, hopefully nobody's going to give them a gun. That would be stupid, but thank you. Well, listen, we've got, to, we've got to run because we're out of time. But listen, Gene, do call back because we need to talk about this some more. There's all sorts of ways of fixing the immigration problem. Setting up one plane to Rwanda in the next four years 
is not the answer. It has to be said. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Up in the next hour, uh, when will it end for celebrities' virtue signalling over this Rwanda scheme? And we'll also take a look at just how much the bozos at Justin Oil cost you. That's right, the British taxpayer. Stay right here. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Good evening. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We're on talk on TV, on radio, online, and, of course, on your smart speaker. Tonight, Defence Secretary Grant Shapps warns Gary Lineker to stick to football after the BBC presenter criticises the government's Rwanda plan. And Sadiq Khan asked the government for more financial support after he claims policing the pro-Palestine protest has cost 240 million quid. Uh, and also, a huge sea monster skull is discovered at cliffs in the south of England. So he's been at it again. He can't seem to help himself. Gary Lineker sticking his nose into politics. Should he not just keep out of it and stick to football? Uh, we want to hear from all of you, of course. Uh, you can get in touch with the show on all the socials at Talk TV and on the phones, 0344 499 1000. Calls uh, will cost you uh, the national rate. Later on in the show, we'll be bringing you a first look at tomorrow's front pages. But before anyone else, we've got an exclusive look at the Sun newspaper. And I've got it right here in front of me. Um, and it's a big story about Tyson Fury. His next bout, apparently, is going to be against Cheshire Council. Pictures of him on the front uh, with his dad, John. Um, apparently, there's a big dispute going on about a council tax bill, which could be as high as £82,000. Cheshire East Council claims the heavyweight champ and his dad um, owe the sum for property adjoining their £1 million mansion. 
Magistrates are going to set, uh, issue a legal order demanding they pay up, possibly as early as t- uh, tomorrow. Um, so we'll see. We'll keep an eye on that. We'll have another look at that coming up a little bit later on uh, when we do the, uh, uh, the rest of the papers with our panel. They'll be coming back in about half an hour's time. Now, moving on, the Defence Secretary has lashed out at Gary Lineker, sparking a fresh BBC impartiality row after his criticism of the government's Rwanda plan. Surprise, surprise. Grant Shapp said Gary should stick to TV and stop expressing political views after the presenters signed a joint letter demanding the scheme be scrapped. Lineker and actor Brian Cox are among the celebrities who have signed the letter, calling for the controversial policy to be replaced uh, with a fair new plan, that they call it, for refugees. Joining me now to discuss the endless Lineker headache is broadcaster Adrian Mills. Adrian, a very good evening to you. Welcome. Good evening to you, Mike. Nice to hear you. Yeah, I mean, as I said, poor old um, Gary Lineker can't help himself, but people have now started saying he's actually not only um, sticking his nose in where it's not really wanted, but he's actually harming the BBC's case in all of its sort of various different arguments with the government, isn't he? Well, I I think with Gary Lineker, it's a bit like the crisps he used to advertise, isn't it? He's he's very Marmite. Um, I spoke to my 93-year-old mother earlier this evening, and she went, I can't bear him. Why doesn't he just be quiet? (laughs) Stick out of it. I haven't, I have to say, I haven't got a problem with it, purely by the fact that he doesn't work for Newsnight, he doesn't work for the news or Panorama. He is entitled to his opinion. And I suspect the reason Grant Schatz is so irate about it, is if you look at Grant Schatz's following, I think he's got 185,000 people following on their, what is it, X or Twitter. Gary Lineker's got 8.7 million people. So he's a very influential voice, and the government will hate that. Well, I mean, he's also got about £8.7 million a year more uh, than uh, than Grant Shapps has got in his pay packet as well. So, I mean, that's another reason he probably doesn't like him very much. But he actually came back at him. And I think this may have been slightly unwise on Gary Lineker's part. He came back at Grant Shapps today on uh, on X, in which he sort of accused him of having three different names. And, you know, because what's, what's appearing to me to be happening um, is that there's this kind of left-wing... Um, cognoscenti, for want of a better word, which includes Alistair Campbell, James O'Brien, Gary Lineker. They're all involved in this podcast company. They're all putting out podcasts. Gary Lineker's making a lot of money out of the lefties, right? And he's basically sort of doing their bidding for them and, you know, getting this government out. And I, I don't mind if he wants to do it, but it seems to me that there's one rule for him and one rule for everybody else because they went out of their way today to say, oh, it's OK because it's an open letter. Yeah, and that's the difference, is that, you know, he, he would have had his wrist uh, severely slapped if it had been, you know, email or had been on company time. Uh, but he has just added his name to an open letter. Where it gets difficult, I think, for the BBC, and in particular, is it uh, Tim Davey, the uh, chairman, yeah. it, it, is the fact that actually, as this rolls on, don't get involved in a spat with the government. So have your say, by mm. all means. But once you start answering back, it becomes a bit like the playground, doesn't it? Where you start arguing with each yes. other. Um, but we all know, and come on, Mike, even you must admit, this is an absolute fiasco. I mean, the government has spent, you know, was it 230, £240 million pounds mm. so far? You'd almost be better off giving every one of them a million pounds and saying, look, don't come to this country. Here's a million quid. Um, and... I was listening to somebody talking about Rwanda. What I hadn't realised is that if people were to go to Rwanda, Rwanda are actually saying they can only take an initial 200 people. Yes. It is a drop... Well, I was going to say in the ocean, but of course, that's where they're coming across from. 
Well, exactly right. No, everybody knows that it's a shambles. Everybody knows that this government is very easy to take pot shots at, but which is why, precisely why um, Gary Lineker shouldn't be doing it, in my view. I mean, here's what um, was said by um, the, chair, the, 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 uh, the head of the BBC, right? Um, Mr Davey says, uh, we aren't going to comment on individuals or indeed individual tweets, but while the guidance does allow people to talk about issues that matter to them, it is also clear that individuals should be civil and should not call into question anyone's character. And he basically did that because he called into question not only Grant Shapps' character, uh, but he was a bit rude about Lee Anderson as well. And that's where it starts to well, get tricky because you then go, all right, yeah, it, well, it does you get know, how much more because, of this uh, is there going to be? Yeah, well, I, I mean, you know, no disrespect. I've, I've met Gary Lineker once. I played cricket with him. Um, he wasn't very friendly towards me, so that's my only encounter with him. But everyone I've spoken to has said he is very outspoken. He is, to a certain extent, uh, very forthright in his opinions. But it does make me wonder if sometimes, because you've heard him talking about when it comes to match of the day, yeah. I don't think I'll be doing this for much longer. It's almost like he's fishing, waiting for that moment to sort of say, the BBC have sacked me. I'm out of here. Maybe I can claim some compensation. Yeah. But I tell you now, he will go to work for any independent broadcaster. They will snap him up. Yeah. Well, I think that's a very interesting point you make. Maybe he is, in fact, trying to get some kind of exit out of the BBC um, because he's actually making an awful lot of money now from the podcast business. He would make even more money out of another sports broadcaster, I'm sure, if he wished to. So maybe he's actually now handcuffed by his own ambition at the BBC um, and he's trying to kibosh it. I, th I think you're right, because he already has named who he thinks his successor should be. And I think it's Jermaine Genus that he's named, oh, yeah. who pops up on the one show and football focus and stuff. So he's already, I think there is an exit strategy. Um, and I think he's pushing it as far he, as he possibly can. And of course, when everybody came out on strike as a result of the last spat, uh, then that's when he was emboldened and that's when he realised he had an awful lot more power oh. than he probably realised at the time. Yes, but as far as the BBC as a company and an organisation is concerned, he is harming an awful lot of the arguments that they're having, presumably, currently, with the government over licence fees going up 10 quid, over the fact that the charter's up for renewal, over the fact that people are talking about changing the model and making it possible for people to pay for bits of it and maybe not pay for other bits of it. You know, it's not a great time to be having a row with the powers that be. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and I think the mistake they've made with the letter is by actually saying it's the will of the British people. Yes. Now, whatever your political leaning, uh, whatever your stance is on this, I don't necessarily think it is the will of the total entirety of the British population because I speak to a lot of people and they are so far removed from how Gary Lineker feels about it um, he's got a platform he's using it to the best of his ability when I used to work there um, we were told no you have to you cannot be biased you have to be down the middle and of course I worked on a consumer program so I was barred from doing anything that would in terms of promotion or slagging something off that we might be talking about on the program and um, the new set of rules at the moment, which everybody... I mean, even Gary Lineker says the new set of rules are very fair. Um, I just think that he's uh, just... Let's say it should go to VAR, and I'm not sure they'll find in his favour. <laughs> well, I mean, I've just had a quick look on the BBC website to see where the story is. Quite hard to find, but it is there. But you have to sort of put old Lineker's name into the search engine to find it. Um, and they're trying to... This is the other problem with the BBC. They're trying so hard to be impartial, but he's not. 
And so there's something wrong there, isn't there? Well, well yes and no, but Mike, you know, look, look at the programme you present. I expect forthright opinion from you, OK? But he, and I, I reiterate what I said, he doesn't present the news. He doesn't present Panorama or Newsnight. He is a football pundit who is entitled to his opinion in the way you are and I am. And actually, is that really bringing the BBC into disrepute? If he worked on another programme, I would say without question it does. At the moment, not convinced. Well, the difference, um, difference the between... Thing, not everyone's favourite flavour. difference between him and us, though, uh, at the end of the day, Adrian, is that, you know, I'm, I'm paying him, as are you, to do his job. He's not paying me to do my job. You know, somebody else does that. And here's what he had to say uh, to Jonathan Gullis, right? Uh, he said that um, Jonathan hasn't read the new guidelines, or should I say, had someone read them to him? Yeah, I thought that was uh, I actually, when I read that, I had a wry smile, but I actually thought it was really patronising. Yes. Um, and I would be really angry if somebody gave me a little dig like that. Um, and, yeah, I, 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 a bit cocky. Yes, that's the problem. He's too cocky. And sometimes when people get a bit too big for their boots, the organisation they work for starts to take a different view of them and a bit of a dim view. And I think Tim Davey, in his um, comments today, has signalled that, you know what? You know, uh, you're on the last chance saloon, sonny boy. Don't try and push it too far. Well, as the uh, late, great uh, Dale Winton said to me once, uh, Adrian, be aware, when everyone's patting you on the back and telling you how wonderful you are, they're just looking for a soft spot to plunge the knife. <laughs> it's absolutely right. I mean, the trouble is, um, we know, I could, wouldn't make a bet with you on it because I'd lose money, that this won't be the last time we hear from Mr Lineker when it comes to the Tory government. But tell you what I'm looking forward to is when he gets just as worked up when Labour screws something up. Well, uh, we're not too far away from finding that out, are we, with the way things are going in the country? Um, yeah, I mean, we all, I think we all know where he stands. Um, I, 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 I'm not a spokesperson for Gary Lineker. I, I wish he was here as a third person in this conversation. Yeah. Um, he picks and chooses his moments, um, and then he's, he's almost like he drops the bomb in and then steps back and waits for the reaction. Yes. And, and at the moment... The reaction is very much in his favour. And I would say, though, because it was an open letter... Sorry? I said, not at Talk TV, it's not. No, OK, OK. <laughs> but what I would say, it was an open letter. And, uh, I mean, you know, there was, uh, what's it, Morrissey, um, uh, um, uh, Brian plank. Fox, other people signed yeah. that letter. They're not quite getting the flack that Gary Lineker no. is. But as you so rightly say... We're all paying his wages, yes. and it's a lot. Yeah, I don't care what Brian Cox has to say, and I don't care what Morrissey has to say. Morrissey um, is a plank of the First Order and always has been, you know. But Gary Lineker, is it, at the end, he's paid by us, and I think he should be a bit more responsible. But, you know, he's blocked me on Twitter years ago, so I never see his tweets anyway. What are you going to do? <laughs> As Catherine Tate would say, am I bothered? <laughs> well, I asked him whether he was paying, uh, how much tax he was paying on his Walker's Chris contract. Took great umbrage at that. Didn't fancy answering it. But there we are. Uh, what can you do? Great to see you, Adrian. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, we'll no doubt hear much more from Gary Lineker. Um, and uh, no doubt, one of these days, uh, he will get his wish, which maybe is to be released through his BBC contract. We shall see. One day, maybe he'll even let me ask him on the show and he can come on and explain himself. We shall see about that as well. Now, let's talk about hair before we go anywhere else, because there's a lot going on at the moment in the world. There's a lot of countries that have got new leaders. Now, let's have a look at this. This is a guy uh, called Millie.
taking power in Argentina. Many of us have begun to scratch our heads because one of the things that we saw when he came in was he had quite a head of hair. So, as it seems he and many other popular leaders have got something odd about their barnets, let's have a look at them. Here he is. I mean, that is absolutely straight out of 1970s Elton John Wiggery, isn't it? And who could forget our own homegrown scarecrow, Bojo, Boris Johnson, crazy hair, absolutely wild. He turned up at the COVID inquiry looking like that. Um, then there's this rather starker-looking chap, Geert Wilders, leader of the Party for Freedom in the Netherlands. Pretty weird hair for Wilders. And, of course, the main man himself, the very one and only Donald Trump, who at one point in the 2020 election campaign threatened to shave off his, well, whatever the hell you call it. He said if he won the election, he would shave off the bird's nest and go bald. And back in 2015, he actually admitted that he had a bald spot. Let's see how... Oh, I try like hell to hide that ball spot, folks. I work harder. Doesn't look bad. Hey, we're hanging in. We're hanging in. It's got to be something, hasn't it? Popularity, big hair, all sorts of things going on. And Donald Trump, of course, um, more than likely, according to the polls, to be the next president of the United States of America. Uh, we should look forward to that. You're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Up after the break, um, we're going to be talking all sorts of things, including the latest XL bully attack, because is it game over for the owners? Uh, a terrible attack at the train station here in London. Of course, we're going to hear from more of you as well. Uh, your call's coming up, 0344 499 1000. See you after this. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Now, before I take your calls, I want to show you this particular shocking video. This is a terrifying moment. Two XL bully dogs launched a crazed attack on a railway platform next to an oncoming train. A woman allegedly lost control of the beasts. Footage was taken at Stratford Station in London. It shows a woman standing over a dog uh, with white and light brown fur. And what you then see is a guy coming over to help out. He sort of offers to take one of the dogs off her while she puts a lead on the other dog. I mean, what the hell she's doing with two dogs like that uh, in the middle of, um, of a busy station is anybody's guess. But he then gets attacked by the dog that he's removed from her care. Have a look. I mean, he manages to get up and run away, but uh, what a terrible, terrible scene. We've been told, of course, that the breeders of these dogs will be told that you can't do it anymore, and there's some suggestion that some of them may go to Scotland to do it, because that's going to be a, uh, something they can do. But absolutely terrifying. It's happening more and more often as well, and when these dogs do attack, they tend to do an awful lot of damage to people. Uh, we'll talk to the panel about that coming up very shortly. But first, let's take a few of your calls. Uh, Stuart is in London, wants to talk about migrants. Hello, Stuart. Hello, Mike. How are you? Good, sir. What can I do for you? Um, as we know, these people coming over from Dingus, Gary Lineker and his little posse, yeah. are saying that they are desperate people in fear of their lives. Yeah. Now, people come over from a dinghy in, say, from Ukraine. They've yeah. got all their paperwork. We know who they are. They are genuine. Yeah. If they're genuine from a war-torn country, why are they destroying all their paperwork? Why are they throwing it in mm. the sea? Well, they're thrown in the sea because they don't want anyone to know who they are, I would imagine. Or where they come from. Yeah. 
Exactly. So they, then they can say anything. They can say, well, I'm obviously from Tripoli um, and I'm running for my life because, you know, my family's been murdered and I'm the only one left. But nobody knows if it's true. Well, of course, of course not. I mean, that really should destroy their case. I agree. And num and number two, but another strange thing is, when they, it's like a uh, politician from Denmark said the other day, when they get leave to stay, guess where they go on holiday? Back to the countries where they're going to be killed at any second. Mm. I think we're being made fools out of. No and question. Just one, more, one more point, Mike. Yeah. Gary Lineker and his, and his friends, uh, what, can you ask them how many people that these desperate people that they want so desperately in here, how many have they volunteer to adopt and take into their homes? Yes. Some of them have massive homes, more than one. They can take quite a few, pay for everything until these people work and save up enough money to get their own place. I'd love to know how many they've taken. Yes. Well, Gary Lineker, of course, would tell you that he did take one person in and he'll probably say yeah, it takes more week. than one. But, you know, that man managed to write a letter in some very good English about what a nice man Gary Lineker was and how surprised he was that he uh, wasn't as conservative as he expected. Amazing. <laughs> Let's talk to Paul in Hartlepool who wants to talk about Gary Lineker as well. Hi, Paul. Hi, mate. How are you doing, sir? Not too bad. How are you? Good You're man. Okay. Yeah, what do you want to say about Lineker? Yeah. I was, I was just going to say about Lineker, uh, uh, well, it's a BBC, really. Yeah. They're paying a fortune for him, right? Mm. I mean, it's a, it's a bit like uh, it's a bit like employing another foot, all the, all the footballers in the in the leagues and whatever, right? Yes. You could pick, pick up one of them and do the same job, you know, with all the, all the knowledge that he's got mm. uh, for for about probably less than a quarter of the price. Yes. So I can understand why they don't uh, rotate the. Uh, the people on, on those panels and save, that, save the, the uh, taxpayer fortune. Yeah, well, they could do. I mean, I wonder whether he is trying to make his own way out of the BBC, though. What do you think of that idea? Well, the sooner the better, I reckon. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, they could yeah. well be. It's absolutely extraordinary that he keeps getting away with it. That is the problem. Let's go finally to Lenny in Ashford. He wants to take talk about the state of British politics. Lenny. Good evening, Mike. Good evening, sir. What can I do for you? Well... I've, I've been politically homeless for quite a long time. Mm. Uh, I have only ever voted Conservative in my life, uh, but haven't voted for many, many years. Right. Uh, because now I'm, I try to be an honourable man mm. and I will not put my cross next to anybody that I don't think is good for our country. Okay. So I don't vote. I haven't found anyone to vote for. Who was the last person you voted for? Uh, it was Conservative. Okay. Yeah. As, you a, know, can, as, uh, a, as it, a local candidate or as a, as a leader? Oh, no. Uh, I, have, I never voted, for, for, you know, to be a leader. I mean, all I vote is in general elections. Yes. And my... And my uh, my MP is Damien Green. Okay. And and I soon discovered that what he says has no value. Right. You know, so uh, when you know when you deal with them on a person, you know, on a one-to-one -one basis. Yeah. I discovered that you know what he says doesn't mean anything. Well, that's in keeping with an awful lot of them, I'm afraid, and I don't mean just the Tories. I mean all of them. Yeah. Well, you know, I think. Personally, I mean, I think uh, I'm dead, very, very frightened of Starmer hmm. becoming Prime Minister. That he, he really frightens me. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think he's... Uh, on another debate I had, I proved over, over a week's period that he, I 
I looked at him as a snake. Mm. And uh, and uh, at the end of it, I proved that I was right. Snake charmer is it? Also sounds like Starmer, doesn't it? That's good, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? I like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe that's the new name for him. Sakia yeah. Snake Charmer. Uh, Bernie, thank you very yeah. much indeed. Brilliant. Um, well, listen, I, I'm sure you speak for an awful lot of people uh, when they say they don't really know who to vote for. And I think I've heard of that an awful lot more than perhaps any other election uh, that I've seen in recent times. We haven't got an election yet, but we never know. We might be getting closer to one uh, tomorrow. And uh, we're going to go back to our panel. We've got loads to talk to them about in a moment. But first, uh, let me tell you about this, because plenty of people have made fun of me over the years uh, for all sorts of reasons. And, of course, when you are an individualist thinker, that tends to happen. And it's not easy not following the crowd, being a little bit different. But some of the most stick I've taken recently have been over my contention that there is such a thing as the Loch Ness Monster. And if no one can find it at the moment, that's simply because it's just not there. And I've explained previously how there's an underground channel which links the famous Scottish Loch to the sea, uh, which could be why it can make its escape frequently. Well, now we've got some proof, finally, and I'd like to share it with you. Have a look at this giant sea monster. It was found at the weekend on the Jurassic Coast down in Dorset. It's a giant skull, almost two metres long. It was discovered buried in a cliff and is thought to be 150 million years old. Local paleontologist Steve Etches called it one of the best fossils he's ever worked on, not least because it is complete. And experts say the pliosaur, for that is what it's called, would have had a body of about 12 metres long, large flippers to help it move quickly through the water, and possibly even a tail, and it would have terrorised the oceans all those years ago. Another researcher said it would have been like a kind of underwater Tyrannosaurus rex, completely terrifying, a giant swimming dinosaur with jaws that could bite twice as hard as a saltwater crocodile. Not so much jaws as a proper monster of the deep. So what's the best thing is descendants are still prowling our seas and lakes, even now, maybe even in Loch Ness. Could be, right? Anyway, uh, that's my um, tip for the day. If you think you're going to put money on it, you should. My panel are back with me, making Gittos here, Ben Harris, Quinny and Laura Dodsworth. I still think that there could be one out there. You're shaking your head there, Laura. I am. There, all going, the... come on. <laughs> well, this is a real creature, though. Or is it's it? A real... Oh, or you're saying it? it's not Do a real fossil. Well, no, I'm not saying it's not a real fossil. Okay. The thing is, they say it's the most complete one. They, you know, it's very exciting because it's so complete. It's only the head. They haven't found the rest of it. Yeah, they found I, the whole I, head. I, mean, I, I don't want to sound <laughs> like a, this big. I don't want to sound like a dinosaur denier here. But yeah. what is the rest of the body? And also, it's 150 million years old. <laughs> I mean, what, you know, what did you expect? It's not also, been preserved in aspic, is it? Well, you know, you're saying it's the Tyrannosaurus of um, of the sea. Well, the Tyrannosaurus doesn't look very realistic. It's this massive head, well, we these tiny arms. We don't think it was a Tyrannosaurus Rex either. I don't know. Find me a whole one. Find me a whole Mind one, me. and I'll and I'll let you know. That is quite shocking. I've Let's... always thought of you as a forensic sort of paleontologist. Then type I'd of like person. to see more forensics. That's literally just the head of it. But I tell you what, the journalism there was quite interesting. Not yours, because yeah. I know that that's um, that's how the Times reported it. Interesting. They say. Um, <laughs> They say that it terrorised the seas. Well, why are they talking about the emotions of yeah, the creature the in the sea? It's the paleontologist that's saying that. It's not the time saying it. We don't know how the other sea creatures. I got. think Maybe if you've got a bite it. which is twice as hard as a saltwater crocodile, which is currently the hardest bite in the world, you know, approximately a hundred times more than a, than a human, I think that's pretty terrifying. There's too much imagination around the whole thing, Mike. Well, listen, there's a lot of weird stuff in the sea that I'm going to tell you about. Uh, one of these days. But let's kick things off because we didn't get to do it um, with the guests that we hoped to have. And it's all about these marches in London, mm. which at the moment are not just costing money 
um, because they just stop oil. But we've now got Sadiq Khan saying, oh, can we have some more money so that they can have some more marches? Well, how about you stop the bloody marches and then it doesn't cost your children 40 million quid? Well, I think it's, it's a question of, of how you balance freedom of speech and right to protest. And yeah. freedom of speech and right to protest should be there. But there's got to be a point where Londoners also have the right to go about their business, right. to, to do whatever they want to do. And the fact that we've now had this for so many successive weekends... I think it must be, what, nine, ten weeks now? The, the point has been made, and quite frankly, I was in one of the protests, and mm. some of the points that were being made uh, were very unpalatable. Yeah. Um, I think the point has now been made, and it's time to say, look, you've, you've had your protests. And they're getting London. smaller, aren't they? Because I think the most recent they're, one... They're getting smaller, but they're still disrupting people's lives and livelihoods, and you've got to draw the line somewhere. Yeah, but what I'm saying is, get, when I'm saying getting smaller, when they were talking at one point of 100,000 people, they're, they're now down to sort of 25, 30,000 people. So it's now just the sort of hardcore nutters, I'm going to call them, um, who've got the, sort of the horrible slogans about, you know, uh, portraying Israel as some kind of Nazi state mm. and all of these nasty anti-Semitism uh, chants that they put out there. So they've, they've got down to the sort of the hardcore of people who, you know, you can't really defend people doing the same thing week after week after week after week, can you? And calling it free speech? Of course not. I mean, I think part of the problem is, um, as Suella Bravham pointed out, we've had a two-tier policing approach to this. Yeah. So the police are doing this um, very kind of ostentatious sharing of photographs of people with, you know, really vile anti-Semitic yeah. placards. And they can't necessarily arrest everybody on the day. But how is this still happening? Yeah. That people are sharing these awful, racist, Jew-hating placards week after week. Mm. They should be arresting them as it happens, not looking for them no. later on social media. No, exactly right. And also, when you've got Sadiq Khan, the Mayor of London, actually asking for more money rather than to ask for some kind of bylaw that can be passed to limit the, the kind of demonstration, I mean, like, I don't know what precedent there is for it, but could you not rope off a bit of Parliament Square or something and say, right, if you want to come and demonstrate yeah. every Saturday inside Parliament Square... This is where you can do it. Or somewhere a bit further away. Well, I mean, I would say you can't like do it Like a really at all, long way away. Be, I'm trying nice to be nice. stationary protest yeah. in the... Swindon. That'll do. Yeah, Swindon. Once you go to Swindon, you know, you never go back. He's not going to suggest anything that's workable, though, because he's not. also doesn't want anything to make yeah. him very unpopular. Yeah. It's really funny with Sadiq Khan, because when he does something... Right, like he's a star, he's amazing, best mm. mayor ever. But when something's not going so well, like us having to bail out TfL constantly, right. it's then big bad central government's fault and he oh, needs yeah. to wash his hands of it. Yes. These protests are in his city. Yes. He needs to have some responsibility and suggest something that will actually work. Yes, allow protests to go ahead. I'm someone that thinks, oh, sorry, I touched my mic, to a certain extent yeah. that free speech, where it is as you say, not horrendously racist, but he has to do But something. isn't it a bit like the, the sort of the, the, the arguments we all have about asylum seekers and the way the law has changed and the way that the, 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 the situation has changed? The you know, the 1951, you know, United Nations, you know, Refugee Act doesn't really apply now because lots of things have changed. We've now got people traffickers, you know, running multi-million pound organisations. And the numbers. People from point A to point B. And there's an awful lot more of them. You know, when the UN was thinking about this in the 1950s, it was post-Second World War, you know, we might need to take a few hundred people who are running away from a terrible situation. Not hundreds of thousands, maybe millions, millions yeah. across the world, right? I just have to rewind. I can't get this out of my head. A minute ago, you said when Sadiq Khan does something really well. well I was... Do you have an example? <laughs> 
<laughs> Sorry. Don't want to put you on the spot. It's rhetorical. Something that's gone well, yeah. No, uh, something that... it's very... It is true. He I even upped his own PR budget a couple of years ago, yeah. and I was just like, that's the last thing we need you actually spending more money yeah. on. I know. Absolutely ridiculous. Speaking of money, uh, let's talk about Prince Harry briefly. Um, it's cost him some money today in the court. <laughs> He's been... I always like to hear Prince Harry having to pay out to newspapers... £48,000. actually not the worst part of his day either because Bob Seeley, the MP for Isle of Wight, laid down his bill today. Oh, did he? <laughs> that meant that, um, yeah, his bill was taken to Parliament. Um, I don't know the date that it's being debated yeah. where um, Parliament could have the opportunity to strip royals of their titles oh. to avoid situations like this where it's just taking over the whole narrative yeah. from years on end. It won't end and it's kind of imprisoning each other at that yeah. point. Well, I mean, he's got so many court cases going on against the government, hasn't he? I mean, at one point, I think, um, earlier this year, he had six different cases going on in the High Court on the same day. And this is one he's got going on against Associated Newspapers, Daily Publishers, Daily Mail. Um, it's a libel case, which I think he's lost, basically. But it's not the end of the case, because there's other bits of it that carry on. But he must be spending a fortune on lawyers as well. What's wrong with him? Well, he'll have to sell some more secrets about his own family <laughs> to, to, to pay for it all. Uh, and I don't think he's got any left. For, yeah. I mean, give them to Omid Scobie and he can just print any old rubbish and then rewrite it and go, oh, sorry, this is the second version which hasn't got the lies in. I wish my sister's secrets were worth that much money. Well, I mean, you know, listen, <laughs> uh, we've right all got away. secrets I'm sure we could sell, but we're not sure how much we get for them. Um, let's talk about um, a boat that uh, was pictured. This is the West Ham supporters' boat, I think. I don't know if we've got some footage of that, have we? Um, which did not go terribly well. The ship hits the fans, is what it says here. Uh, this is somebody, it's one of these party boats, I think. They're going from point A to point B. Um, and they managed to crash it into the bridge, <laughs> which is not the greatest idea you've ever seen. I'm trying to turn a thing like that around. There we go. There's nothing worse than being on a boat when the person driving it doesn't know what they're doing. Do you know what they need? They need, like, a sea monster to rise like Godzilla from the depths and, and well, just lift them. them over the bridge, don't they, Mike? Well, there might be one. I don't <laughs> sense that you're taking that story entirely seriously. You know. <laughs> Maybe I'm not taking this story that seriously <laughs> either. <laughs> well, let's talk about the COVID inquiry, then, because I know you want to. Um, Rishi Sunak was there today. Yeah. Um, he's the first person so far that's mm -hmm. appeared to say that, actually, we're sorry not just to the people who had lost... Yeah loved ones due to COVID, but actually we're going to say sorry to the people who were injured or damaged in some way by the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I think there's three things that um, have gone quite well for Rishi Sunak today. First of all, I'd say he's the first official to apologise for people suffering from the effects of lockdown, yeah. not just the people that died from COVID. And, of course, this is, this is an area that the inquiry is totally neglecting mm. to cover at all the yeah. harms of lockdown, the cost-benefit of lockdown, whether lockdown hurt people and didn't work. Yes. So, you know, he's just touched on that. That's one thing. Secondly, it turns out that he didn't commit too much into WhatsApp, which is correct, yes. ministerial. You know, to, he's to be commended for, first and of all, And Isabel Oksha so... actually confirmed that most of the WhatsApps that she'd found that he'd written weren't very interesting. So, in fact, he's not hes not one of those that's going around insulting that's people. interesting. You know, that yeah. he's actually... Yeah. She said she actually went along with what he said because the ones that she's seen were pretty bland. Yeah. And, of course, it's not how ministerial business should be done, as no. well as, you know, it's just silly to commit 
all these pejoratives and and you know cackling at people in budget hotels into you know into WhatsApp like they did. Yeah. But the um, the third thing is you know he's been slated a lot for eat out to help out, and I just have to say that I'm just reaching boiling point with this KC now. He just keeps asking the wrong questions. Yeah. Why are we still talking about whether eat out to help out was a bad idea? Because you just need to look at infections and deaths. Yeah. Nothing happened. It didn't do any no. harm at all. It was actually quite a sensible policy to encourage people back into into the high mm -hmm. street and into the world. It had no real world. And it's a very tiny, tiny part of the things that happened over that two-year period, right? No real world costs at all. And no. you know, oh, on this KC, they're still he's very smug, isn't he? He's very smug. He's been giving a very, very soft line of questioning to. A lot of the experts, and he's not—he's just not interrogating things properly because he's coming from such a place of presumption. You know, they're talking about the hospitalisation data, and he still hasn't got back, got to the bottom of something that some of us knew in 2021, yes. which is that hospitalisation data included people that went to hospital with COVID, mm. people that caught COVID in hospital because yeah. they're like mini cities. People of are infection. still doing that, by the way. Of course, and people that would have had erroneous false positives. You know, it was a, it was yeah. a big number. It included a lot of different people, he hasn't worked out some of the very basics of this kind of data analysis. The whole inquiry is doomed, but yeah. Rishi's done quite well today. We've, we've discussed this before, but um, I think the numbers are all on one side, and that is very suspicious to me. The government must have had an estimate of how many people lockdown was going to kill because yeah. they missed cancer appointments or whatever it might be. Because, because and they had, we that. know they had conversations oh, no, about I, it. Of course, I, they must have done. They I, must but have I, done. I can help you with that right now. I put it in my book, A State of Fear. I spoke to a disaster recovery planner who said that for every one death from COVID, in terms of body, body disposition and storage, they were planning for another four deaths caused by lockdown. Right. Because you would have deaths caused by problems with obstetrics, sepsis, delayed cancer treatment, domestic violence, all kinds of problems. So every one death of COVID equated to another four deaths caused by mm. lockdowns in terms of the body disposition planning. Yes. And so we will know in the next couple of years, and I've been told this by people who mark these things, that it will be at least two years before you know what the kind of excess deaths figure is right. for people yeah. who didn't die from COVID itself, but and from something else. Thing, I think Isabel Oakeshott a couple of weeks ago made the best point people had made at that point about this is in 10 years' time, even possibly five, we're not going to have Rishi, Boris no. and Hancock. Hope so not, most yeah. of these questions and what we're asking about is redundant. Yeah. It's not helping us for a future pandemic. No. It's not helping us decide how we handle any decision no. apart from eat out to help out. The only Brilliant. thing I'm learning is we should never hire this, this QKC ever again because he's really, really not doing the right job. Um, I don't often like to mock when there's something criminal going on, but Cardiff uh, today cancelling its £800,000 bike hire scheme has made me smile. Uh, they've got this thing called Next Bike, a bit like the Boris bikes here. Uh, but after more than 3,000 cycles have been stolen or vandalised over the last two years, they've had to knock it on the head. So down in Cardiff, they've obviously got the right idea about cycling. No thanks. I'm only going to cycle on a stolen boat, bike. <laughs> well, maybe they like London's cycling too been much. transformed. I was walking but... around today thinking London has been transformed by cycling and Sadiq Khan, who's some kind of maniac. But transformed, you don't mean transformed for the better, no. do you? No. No, much, no. no for the worse. Absolutely. You know, every time I see a cyclist getting on a bike and going down the street the wrong way or crossing, you know, the street the wrong way, or just taking absolutely no notice of any traffic lights or any actual pedestrians or anything, you know, it's now impossible to be anything in London unless you're a cyclist. Yeah, <laughs> and I, 
I also think that since, um, since cycling's been pushed so much, this is just my own opinion, I can't back it up with any evidence, but I think that <laughs> cyclists have become really emboldened, they don't follow the rules. It's not that long ago that my my sons did their heart, their yeah. bikeability, let's oh, yes. call it, school. And there's a lot of rules, you know, you're, you're supposed to have lights on your bike, yeah. you should wear a helmet. Lights on your bike, a lot, of, a lot of cyclists around right. the streets of London now don't have lights at right. night, they don't stop They've at traffic lights. In. And actually, when you're driving as a motorist, you know, it's this uber responsibility mm. to keep yourself and to keep everyone safe, and the cyclists are not helping. They're not. And they're putting themselves in danger, you know, yeah. because a lot of them don't have lights, a lot of them you can't see, they're wearing dark clothing. And, you know, and they're doing really dangerous things. It really drives me insane. Ridiculous. Uh, but I'll cheer you up before uh, the end of this because we've got a picture of Carrie Johnson. I'm told this might be the new uh, Johnson family Christmas picture, but I'm not sure that's right. That's Peppa Pig. Do you remember when he did that weird speech about Peppa Pig? Peppa Pig World. Um, Peppa Pig yeah. World, where he went, where I've never been. Um, oh, we've got the clip as well. Let's have a listen to it then. Here she is, and here's Boris. Who would have believed, uh, Tony, that a pig that looks like a hairdryer, uh, or, or possibly a, well, a sort of Picasso-like hairdryer, uh, a pig that was rejected by the BBC, uh, would now be exported to 180 countries with theme parks both in, uh, in America and in China as well as in, as well as in the New Forest. And uh, a, 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 a business that's worth at least six billion pounds uh, to this country, six billion pounds and, and counting. Now, I think that is pure genius, don't you, Peppa Pig? Uh, and no government in the world, no Whitehall civil servant would conceivably have come up uh, with, with Peppa. Now, that's just a reminder for those people who think that it'd be a good idea to get him back, um, that he went to that conference, that CBI conference, and clearly lost his notes and didn't know what he was supposed to be talking about. Although there are those who say he knows exactly what he's doing when he does that, and he yeah. was actually probably rehearsing uh, just to make it look like he didn't know what he was doing. Is he now an official Peppa Pig lobbyist? Is he is well, that on the register? I mean, he may well be. Right. I don't know if he has to. He doesn't have to put anything on any register now, does he? You know, all he has to do is uh, sign on the dotted line. Right. Because he's no longer in Parliament, unless he wants to come back in. Uh, but we're going to come back with some more stories. You're watching the Independent Republic uh, of Mike Graham, the ever-growing shibboleth, that's a good word, of the civil service, wasting more taxpayers' money, and a sneak peek at some of the other big stories in tomorrow's papers. It's all coming next. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, it's time for this. The World of Work. There are at least half a million people working in the civil service these days, and that doesn't count everyone in local government and other areas of the public sector. This is purely and simply the people that work in Whitehall, the Home Office, the Foreign Office, the Department of Health, the Treasury, Department of Defence, you know, the major offices of state, the place where government policy is enacted where the real job of running the country is actually done. The problem, of course, is that it's not running very well. And we know why, don't we? The civil service is a law unto itself. It's been infiltrated by the wokists. It's become a shield for all kinds of people who don't wish to see any Conservative policy enacted whatsoever. We all know how the Home Office runs. It doesn't. The majority of the people employed there only turn up for work once a week, and they're more interested in pronouns on emails than they are in protecting Britain. Is it any wonder our borders aren't secure, that our immigration policy is not fit for purpose, this week, we learned that it's even worse than we thought. It turns out the people in charge of the workforce, those known as senior civil servants, are actively encouraged to be more woke. In fact, it's more like a woke service 
it's been revealed that bonuses are now offered in return for putting people through diversity and inclusion programmes. An official leaked document says this includes work, this is their words, at the cross-government functional level, for example, involving leadership of functional initiative on capability building or diversity and inclusion. Hey, eh? How about just do the bloody job you're paid to do? That was The World of Woke. The World of Woke. Hey, the panel is still with me. Laura Dodsworth, it's like the, the World of Woke force, isn't it? It's woke force, not work force. It's, What's going on? I mean, the, the woke classes have run amok in the civil service. Yeah. And let's be clear about this. These senior civil servants who are being incentivised with bonuses if they lead equality, diversity and inclusivity programmes, yeah. those bonuses, they're coming from our pockets. Exactly, it's our money. That's taxpayers' money. Right. So we're paying, we're paying for the civil service to be even woker. But, you know, it's even worse than that story. Is it? Yeah, it is. It is. It's even Can't worse be. what's happening. It really is. In one, in one section, the Competition and Markets Authority, mm. they actually have internal guidelines that recommend that employees spend, wait for it, 10% of their time on EDI stuff mm. to make the workplace more inclusive so everyone can be their complete self. But they're not even there work. most of the time, are they? And they have EDI calendars throughout the civil right. service with things, I mean, on their own, they sound worthy. I don't sound like I'm being mean, but, you know, World Braille Day and um, Lesbian like Visibility that. Week and favorites. Transgender Awareness Month and all these things. So they have a calendar of all this stuff. And the critical race theory, you know, the kind of the white privilege trainer, yeah, yeah. Got, that's compulsory. Yeah. Okay, so it it runs very very deep through mm. the civil service, and we're paying for it. That's us here. Everyone who pays taxes. Wokest advent calendar, and you open it up every day, and it's got something. Don't joke. The National Trust did that, didn't they? Yeah. Do you remember? Yeah, I know. And they didn't have Christmas on their own calendar. No, although they they say it's only on one of their calendars, but it's still on one of them. But anyway, why would mind. you leave Christmas off any calendar? I know. I know, it's bonkers. Let's talk about the front page of the Sun. We, we revealed it a little bit earlier on. Fury versus Cheshire Council. Anyone who's ever had a problem with a local council will have some sympathy, I would imagine, with the Fury family. They're supposedly owing 82,000 quid to Cheshire East Council. It seems like an awful lot of money. Um, it's something to do with the building that's next to their £1 million um, mansion in style. Um, but, you know, local councils are getting out of hand as well, aren't they? Well, especially when we hear where the money's going. Yeah. And that's the problem. Look, I, I declare an interest. I was a, a councillor for six years or so. And uh -huh. I always, so you know it from the inside. Right. Well, I always voted against tax hikes and there were plenty of schemes that the council shouldn't have been doing. And I think that's where people... I mean, 82,000 is a bit steep, even if they're doing good things. But the yeah. fact is, a lot of the stuff they do is a waste of money and most people want the bins collected on time yeah. and uh, you know and services to work and and that's not working and yet the council tax goes up year on year so I'm I'm with I'm with Tyson. Yeah, I think most people will be because and nobody's going to be with the council no matter what they're supposed to have done. Uh, Santa's <laughs> little royal helpers, a nice little Christmassy story for you all. I don't know if any of you are Republicans, but I rather like pictures of um, of Kate, the Princess of Wales, with her kids George, Charlotte, and Louis, gift wrapping the perfect Christmas children. Uh, for children in need of a festive treat. That's nice, isn't it? I don't know how she has three such well-behaved children. In I don't think they're that well-behaved. I mean, yeah. they, no, they, they look pretty well-behaved. I mean, 
They're doing a really good job. They're always in nice, neat jumpers and they're always very well yeah. behaved. They're exemplary children. They are like they? the perfect they family. Are. Although when you see George on the balcony, though, he's quite often like playing up, isn't he? No, cute. It's just cute. It's not very really bad cute. behaviour. It's just little faces. Yeah, yeah. it's adorable. Yeah. I think no, I think I think they're great. I mean, particularly in the in the wake of uh, Harry still having to pay out to. Uh, to lawyers, I think that's a nice little contrast. Mm. Let's do a bit of Nigel Farage. I told IT bosses go to hell, naked shower showdown. Well, we saw a bit of him naked, didn't we? But we didn't see. Oh, it's very cheeky. A little bit cheeky. Um, people that I know said he, they thought he looked pretty good for his age, actually. But um, I haven't. I've managed to avoid watching any of it, which is what <laughs> I try to do every single year. I didn't see any of Matt Hancock. I didn't see any of Nigel Farage. Quite happy to talk about it. But... Well, I, I know. I know someone who used to go to saunas and steam rooms with Nigel Farage oh, yeah. on a purely platonic basis and they said he's got nothing to be embarrassed about. So, really? Okay. So good luck well, thank you for that piece of information. <laughs> yeah. uh, Thanks. I'm not sure if it's too much information <laughs> for some people. But the thing is, I mean, it is, it is a bit outrageous to have shown him naked like that on TV. Yeah. I Do mean, you think it, there was an ITV move to try and humiliate him? Do you yeah, think of that course. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's a disgusting thing to do. If they'd done it to a woman, there'd be mm. a complete outcry. They sort really... of do, though, don't they? They do the white... I don't think they still do the white bikini. It's a long yeah, time since I saw sure. it. But they used to have that thing of the woman goes into the, the shower, coming off the rocks with a white bikini on. I mean, that was pretty sexist, wasn't it? They used to Why am I getting, like, no response to no, it? Was, always it was it Nigel Farage's right. yeah. naked backside. Yes. I mean, it's if they'd done that to a woman, there would be an outcry. Yeah, no, I get that. I, get I, I think he played a blinder. I think so. You know, and uh, I, I tell you what, I don't think Rishi Sunak would be doing a lot of the things he was doing if, if Nigel had been around. Cameron was appointed the day he went into yes, the jungle. True. I think if Nigel had been voted out a bit sooner, maybe the Rwanda bill wouldn't be happening in the form it's happening. I mean, I did think when he went into the jungle, it wasn't a great time to go in there, given the sort of carnage that was going on in, in politics. And David Cameron... Uh, was appointed, wasn't he? Imagine the first week he was out, in. Yeah, well, it was the day. Told. Imagine the day coming out of the jungle going, sorry? Yeah. <laughs> David Cameron's what? Yeah. Secretary? How long have I been in What's the jungle? You know what, we haven't um, mentioned, actually. I quite like him slapping around um, old Humza Useless up in Scotland. I don't know if you've seen that story, but you know, Cameron's written a letter yeah, to, him to say, would you mind not going around acting as if you're the sort of de facto yeah. Foreign Secretary of Scotland? It's true. Because, you know, you're not supposed to be doing that. You're supposed to present a common front. He's not supposed, supposed to have a foreign policy agenda. No. So I'm really glad. And the letter said that that's the second time he's had to be pulled up on yeah. this. He's not allowed a foreign policy agenda. Right. What is And now doing? they're putting it under threat, aren't they? These Scottish kind of, they're not really embassies, but they've got these sort of buildings around the world where you can go and, you know, pretend you're in a Scottish embassy. And they're talking about getting rid of all of those. Mm -hmm. Well, they, yeah, they can't act like that. It's, we have to have a united front. That's yeah. always been the rules. It's and also always he's been, been the trying case. to give a load of money away to Gaza, which is, you know, he wasn't Elected no. on a foreign policy agenda. So what, why the hell is he executed? To be fair, he wasn't elected at all, was he? I mean, he sort of became the leader. <laughs> oh, of that's the so true. Step down. Yeah, it's true. all the rage. Uh, front page of Telegraph. Um, apparently, Heather Mills isn't happy, which is always good news. Um, she's blamed the gaslighting meat industry for the collapse of her vegan food empire. Oh, Maybe gosh. it's just because the vegan food empire wasn't particularly making very nice food. Oh. Vegan food tastes like cardboard, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, all of these businesses aren't doing well. Um, oh, gosh, I don't yeah, remember that. Yeah, that Beyond Meat, isn't it? Beyond, That's gone um, beyond impossible. the bankruptcy court, none of, I think, isn't it? None of them are selling well. No. And, and first of all, they don't taste good. I've tried them. I defy anyone to say that a Beyond Burger tastes as good as meat. Right. Secondly, they're not good for you. They're processed. Yeah. And thirdly, it's just overpriced tech bro yeah. fake food. It's ne it was never going to fly. It's never going to fly. I mean, I'm, I'm never 
ever going to eat another vegan burger again, having tried one. And what yeah. it is, is people's taste is catching up with the sales figures. Yeah, I It's never so. sold out in the supermarket, is it, the vegan no. section? No, and I think also oh, when no, food... worse than that. When food prices, also when food prices started to go up, yeah. Yeah. people were like, we're yes. not spending so the money on vegan food. Is, uh, I used to eat a lot of the vegan processed stuff. And when food prices started going up, that is exactly the choice yeah. I made because I no longer wanted, I'm not gonna eat processed food because it's okay if it's just quick, but I no longer want, it's really put me off it when you actually think about how yeah. much of it is processed. I don't eat a lot of meat myself, but actually it's very expensive now. It's heavily processed, loads of additives. Right. It's just not, it's not good just for you. Just order you a load of stuff of really on, uh, on Amazon and eat the, eat the cardboard. Of course it doesn't, yeah. I'm not expecting it to taste like meat. It just watch, is what it is. Watch but, the calls, yeah. watch the calls for the industry to be subsidised. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's already started. Yeah. You know, the kind of the tech bros you know, that see this as a great entrepreneurial be one for the way to make charming. their billions. Yeah. And, and they're going to they're want they're going to want government investment, and they'll say it's all for net zero. I'd like to see a stake subsidy. Yeah, why not? Up. Indeed. Now, finally, Christmas is coming. It's only a couple of weeks away. According to English Heritage, hardly anyone sings the right tune when they sing Christmas carols. I think the point they're making is that over time, the melodies have kind of become a slightly watered down version of something very medieval. I quite like like the sound of a medieval carol. Me. What do you they know? mean nobody knows the right tune? These are the only hymn, like, you know, the only songs in a church well, they always know the tune According for. to Dr Michael Carter, the first carols were actually written to be danced to and would have been a rather jolly affair, whereas now they're a bit kind of slow, aren't they? Yeah. So I think that's the point, that they've sort of been watered down. Hark the Herald Angels Sing um, have had all sorts of different scores written around them. So just when you think you know about something, see, so you'd like this. You like that better than the I'm, skull, don't you? I, you like I, it better than the monster. I, absolutely love this. I was reading a similar story today, actually, about yeah. Allegri's Miserere, that it, um, okay. it, 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 it doesn't sound anything now like the way it was written. Okay. I think the way that music We've evolves... Got to stop. We have to, we're out of time. We're out of time. You'll have to come back tomorrow. We, That's all we, from we, me. You've been watching The Independent time. Republic and Mike Green. See you tomorrow, 9pm. It always does that at the end, sorry.